This time for Legally Speaking, Michael Mulligan is barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. Morning, Michael. How are we doing? Good morning. I'm doing great. Some really interesting stories on the agenda today. Where do we begin? I think a good place to start would be uh, some information about the appeal, which is continuing, as I understand it, today, uh, dealing with the conviction and uh, sentencing of Andrew Barry, who was the uh, notorious individual who was convicted of murdering his two daughters a number of years ago. Yes. Um, and that appeal ha- has been going on uh, for, it was scheduled for a total of four days. Uh, and the first thing people should be aware of is that that's a very long time uh, for an oral argument in a criminal appeal to go on for. Mm-hmm. Um Ordinarily, an appeal of that kind, even in a complex case, might be expected to easily complete within a day. Um, And that may be a function of the number of things that are being dealt with or the complexity of the trial. Uh, But people should be aware that it's clearly a complicated matter taking several times longer than what uh, would ordinarily uh, be the case. Um, Some other things people should be aware of in terms of uh, criminal appeals, and it relates to this particular uh, case as well, um, is that a a criminal appeal uh, is not a new trial. It's not a matter of the uh, Court of Appeal judges saying, what would we have done or what do we think of the evidence or or anything like that. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, An appeal in a criminal case is essentially to look for mistakes or things that might have gone wrong uh, during the actual trial. Um, and that relates to the um, circumstances in which an appeal can either be allowed or dismissed. Um, and in a criminal case, a conviction appeal can be allowed by the Court of Appeal if the court is satisfied of one of three things. Um, either uh, if the court or if the Court of Appeal is satisfied that a verdict is unreasonable or cannot be supported by the evidence, right? So there would be some limited weighing of the evidence looking at the transcript saying, look, was this unreasonable? Could it be supported? Mm-hmm. Uh, an appeal could also be allowed if the Court of Appeal concluded that a judge made a wrong decision on a question of law, um, and that's ov- often the focus of an appeal. Or thirdly, if there are any grounds that, that uh, uh, cause the Court of Appeal to conclude there was a miscarriage of justice, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so that issue of the wrong decision on a question of law is often where the focus is. Um, And in an appeal like this one that's going on, where there's a jury decision, we don't, of course, have what we would have in a case involving a judge alone, which would be reasons for judgment, where when a judge makes a decision, they need to explain how they came to the decision, right? What evidence did they uh, accept? What did they reject? Why? What do they say the law was? And how do they come to their conclusion, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And we have that so things can be reviewed and people can understand how a decision was reached. With a jury case, of course, that doesn't exist. Juries don't explain how they reach the decision. They simply come out and it's guilty or not guilty. And so on an appeal in a jury case, what's being looked at um, are things like what instructions did the judge give to the jury, right? At the end of a case, uh, there would be what's called a charge to the jury where the judge would tell the jury, here's the law and here's what you should go back and do. And so that would be looked at carefully to determine if the judge made any mistakes in their charge. And then the other thing which would be looked at would be decisions made by the judge, legal decisions, during the course of the trial. Uh, And that's been, as I understand it, the focus of this particular appeal, including decisions made by the judge about whether certain evidence should have been admissible or not, 
and as well whether the defense should have been permitted to pursue um, various lines of uh, argument. Um, on the admissibility front, uh, there can be a couple of issues that are apparently live ones here, uh, including things like constitutional arguments. There's an argument, as I understand it, about whether um, statements made by the accused after he was arrested but before he was told about his right to counsel should have been admitted by the trial judge, right? So that would be an example of a legal argument. Mm -hmm. And there can also be legal issues involving a judge's general discretion to determine whether evidence should be admitted based on an assessment of whether it would be more prejudicial than it is probative of an issue in a case. So, for example, let's say you had an accused person who did something which was just kind of outrageous uh, and inflammatory, but had nothing to do with whether they committed an offense or not, yes. right? Maybe they made some rude comment or engaged in some completely antisocial behavior. A judge might well be expected to say, look, you can't just lead evidence that somebody's a terrible person or did something that none of us like, because that doesn't tell us anything about whether they committed the crime, right? It, it just might cause people to say, well, that, I don't like that person, um, and could cause a jury in theory to convict somebody based on something other than evidence about whether they did it or not. Um, and that's another issue, which is apparently a live one in this appeal. Um, finally, people should be aware that not every legal error results in a new trial, right? Yeah. Um, you know, cases are complicated. This one went on for apparently 120 days, right? The original wow. trial. Yeah. And so judges are human. Sometimes they get it wrong, right? And you know, when you look at it with a transcript in the cold light of day, and carefully pick it apart, often you will find things which are just, well, you just made a mistake, right? You look at the law, you got it wrong. Not every legal error results in a new trial being ordered. There's a provision in the criminal code dealing with appeals that allows a court of appeal, even where they find that a judge made a legal mistake, to not order a new trial if the court of appeal concludes that there was no substantial wrong or miscarriage of justice. Right. Mm -hmm. And so you can have a mistake made where the Court of Appeals say, yeah, the judge made a mistake. They shouldn't have admitted that piece of evidence or shouldn't have caused this or that to occur. Uh, but if they look at it and say, look, this just could have made no difference in terms of the uh, outcome of the case. Uh, the Court of Appeal isn't obliged to order a new trial. Uh, and so here, what's going to eventually happen after they hear the oral argument is that they'll need to determine, did the judge make legal mistakes? Did the judge make any mistake about the admissibility of evidence uh, or in the instructions the judge gave to the jury? And then if so, right, could that have been a meaningful one, right? Not every small error is going to result in a new trial. Um, so that's the process that's going on. It's not a... Uh, fresh trial or sort of the Court of Appeal saying second-guessing uh, what somebody uh, might have decided. Uh, it's a matter of looking at what happened to determine if there were any mistakes made that could have had an impact on the outcome. Uh, and that's how I expect it will play out. But uh, it's uh, clearly a complicated uh, case because it's been uh, the appeal is running at least four times longer than uh, one would expect uh, in a uh, circumstance like this. Um, finally, there's been some reference to the fact that there's both, a, in this case, a conviction appeal and a sentence appeal. Mm -hmm. And the way that would work is the Court of Appeal would decide first about whether a new trial should be ordered, right? Mm -hmm. Because if a new trial was ordered, there's no need to deal with the issue of sentence. 
And so that's the order they would deal with it in. Should there be a new trial? If so, well, go of a new trial. If no, then they would go on to analyze the issue of the um, sentence appeal. And in a murder case, of course, the mandatory sentence is always life in prison. The only issue is how long should somebody be prohibited from even asking for parole? And in this case, the uh, trial judge imposed a 22-year period before a person could make a request, the accused could make a request for a new, for sorry, for parole. People should know that that does not mean that somebody would get parole at that time. It just means you can send in your request. We'll have a look at it. Yeah. Uh, but the, the overarching uh, consideration is always the need to protect the public. So that's a common misperception that somehow uh, you would be released at, at that parole ineligibility threshold. That's simply how long you need to wait before somebody could even make a request. Um, so that's how the criminal appeal will work. Perfect. Let's take our first break. Legally speaking here on CFAX 1070 with Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers. We'll continue right after this. Back on the air here at CFAX 1070, joined as always by Michael Mulligan from Mulligan Defense Lawyers during the second half of our second hour on a Thursday. What's next on our agenda, Michael? Uh, next on our agenda is a case dealing with a, a ban on publication of disclosure material uh, relating to the ongoing prosecutions of members of the Rainforest Flying Squad. Ah. Uh, and so uh, the background of this, of course, are these 400-plus uh, people uh, who are uh, charged with criminal contempt for allegedly breaching uh, orders with respect to um, teal cedar products not to block logging roads uh, and try to interfere with the logging operations. Um, and this particular case dealt with deals with an interesting issue involving disclosure material in criminal cases. And the way that works is that in a criminal case when you're being prosecuted for something, Crown Counsel has an obligation to provide what's referred to as disclosure of all of the evidence and other relevant material gathered by the police. Hmm. Um, and the reason for that should be pretty clear. It's to prevent uh, the wrongful conviction of people, yeah. right? We have very regret regrettable cases, uh, uh, most of which are some time ago happily, uh, involving uh, Crown Counsel not providing um, evidence to the accused that might demonstrate that they are innocent, right? And the people being wrongfully convicted. And so that's why we have strict rules that require Crown to provide uh, to the accused or their lawyer all of the relevant evidence gathered by the police, right? Yeah. Now, one of the rules, however, uh, is that when that kind of uh, evidence, disclosure material, is provided to an accused uh, or their lawyer as part of a criminal case, that material can only be used for the purpose of defending the criminal case. It cannot be used for other purposes. Um, and one of the key cases called Bassey uh, that uh, made clear that principle was the uh, float out of the legislative raid case from a number of years ago mm -hmm. um, over BC Rail. Um, and in that case, the accused wanted to keep the, and use the disclosure material for other purposes, potentially, maybe civil litigation or something else. Yes. Uh, and the judge ordered, no, there is what's called a implied undertaking, like a rule that applies when somebody receives material uh, as part of disclosure material to ensure they have a fair trial in a criminal case. The the uh, person who receives it cannot use it for anything else. They're not permitted to use it in civil litigation without an order of a judge. They cannot publish it or do something else with it. You can't just go stick it all up on the Internet or publish it in the newspaper or something. 
and so in the context of this, those are the rules, and so in the context of these prosecutions of the Rainforest Flying Squad, maybe not surprisingly, given that the allegations are breaching a court order, somebody amongst the 400-plus people breached that obligation and those rules, right? Uh, and they distributed uh, material they received by way of disclosure material. Mm. Uh, and the disclosure material wound up in the hands of journalists. Hmm. The journalists, being responsible journalists, phoned Crown and phoned the police for comment on some of the material. Yes. It apparently had to do with uh, alleged police or RCMP misconduct um, enforcing the injunction. Uh, and that caused the uh, Crown to rush off to court and seek a ban on publication of any of that information that was in the disclosure material that came into the hands of journalists. And so this decision, which just came down um, on the 21st, um, was a decision of the judge needing to decide, should there be a ban on the journalists using this information they've received by one of the accused, presumably, who breached their implied undertaking and uh, released the material. Hmm. And so the judge was clearly very impressed by the professionalism of the journalists in the case, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Um, they were acting responsibly. They had nothing to do with the breach of the uh, uh, implied undertaking. They simply came into receipt of this material and then wanted to report on it. Yes. And, and the judge spoke about the importance of investigative journalism uh, and uh, you know how it is that we all rely upon uh, that rather than people simply parroting news releases or something. Um, Right, in order to uh, keep people to account and how important the free press is, yes. constitutionally protected. But the judge had to weigh that um, against the potential um, serious implications of disclosure material being uh, published uh, and the potential impact it could have on the provision of full and frank and complete disclosure of material by the Crown, which is so important to ensure that innocent people aren't convicted of things. Um, and one of the concerns that the judge had is that um, if disclosure material is being published, even occasionally, it could have a chilling effect on people's, for example, willingness to go and provide information or cooperate with the police, right? If somebody goes to the police and provides some information, if their statement uh, winds up being posted on the Internet or something, yeah. um, having to think about, the, oh, my goodness, uh, don't do that, <laughs> right? It could have terribly negative implications for you. Yeah. And so the judge had to weigh those important, um, the importance of the freedom of expression and freedom of the press against the need to ensure that there is full disclosure um, and we don't so, you know, suppress people's willingness to participate in criminal investigations. And so here, ultimately, the judge ordered there be a ban on publication of the material uh, unless and until it's disclosed in the context of the trial uh, or the stay application, because then it would be in the public domain, yes. right? And trials are public. Yeah. The judge refused the Crown's application to try and force the journalists to turn over any material they received. Um, the judge obviously impressed with, look, the journalists are going to follow my order that it not be published except in those circumstances, and so refused that. Um, and so... The Crown got something of what it wanted. The judge also made, for whatever good it will do in the context of the fact that you've obviously got somebody here who's not prepared to follow the uh, uh, rules that already apply, an express order prohibiting uh, people from uh, passing out or distributing or publishing the material they're receiving by way of disclosure. But again, 
you're dealing with and part of the challenge here is it's not just one individual you can say well we know who gave this out it's you <laughs> we only gave it to you yeah right yeah. the problem is when you give it to 400 people all of whom are charged with breaching a court order good luck trying to figure out who leaked it i'm right? sort That's of really the problem yeah i'm sort of surprised that happened like i have dealt with documents that we have obtained uh, through ways that i'm 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 not going to in detail specify and one of the concerns that i always have is that if um the governing body or wherever the documents came from became aware that we had them how easily would they be able to work backwards and figure out where they came from and i think that there is an ethical obligation to inform any source if you actually know that their identity the risk that they are taking with respect to that so that is a consideration that must always be made right if you could sort it out that person can be charged with contempt precisely if you could tell which of the 400 plus people (laughs) decided to hand this out or publish it, they could be charged with contempt for doing that. Yes. Um, Here, interestingly, one of the journalists had published a story based on the material they received. Then the Crown got an interim injunction. The journalist removed the story Mm. that was posted online, and then we had this hearing. Um, And so it's a good reminder for people about how this stuff works and why it is that people who receive material to ensure they have a fair trial are not allowed to go post that on the Internet or hand it out or use it for some other... Uh, purpose as tempting as that might be for them Um, and the courts take that really seriously because we take really seriously having fair trials and ensuring people get the disclosure they need uh, so that we don't convict innocent people. So Rainforest Flying Squad continuing to create uh, endless legal work, it would seem. I was going to say, you know, lawyers tasked with overseeing those cases certainly have an endless amount of interesting material to work with, it would seem. No, my goodness. And what a management task that would be, too, with hundreds of people and all these trials, right? It's a a serious challenge, no doubt about it. Absolutely. I think we have one more thing on the agenda today, do we not? Indeed we do. Uh, And this is a uh, case that's now in the Court of Appeal. It's a Victoria case, um, and it's one that got a fair bit of attention at the time. It was a case involving a substantial amount of drugs, uh, and back in 2019, uh, man in Victoria and uh, accused were convicted of uh, being in possession for the purpose of trafficking a whole bunch of drugs. Uh, and the, one of the men who's appealing got six years in prison. Now, here's the, here are the interesting things that have happened since then. Most of the drugs, the background of the case is that most of the drugs were found in the safe, in a safe, a large safe in an apartment. There were some drugs found in a freezer in the same apartment. The accused who's appealing was not his apartment. The connection, the substantial connection between the man who was convicted and who was appealing and the drugs was a key allegedly found on a lanyard uh, in his bedroom when there was a search conducted of his bedroom at the same time as the search of the apartment where the drugs were found. The twists are that the police officer who testified that he found the key on the lanyard didn't properly record it claims that he took the key and lanyard before the identification uh, people showed up to take pictures of the bedroom uh, and said, oh, I just realized at the end I I put that in my pocket and handed it in for the purpose of being recorded as part of the case. The key fit the safe. That's what connected the man in the bedroom, the man who didn't live there, to the drugs in the safe. Here's the problem. That very police officer who didn't properly record finding this key that was the key to the case, was a short time after the conviction uh, the subject of a serious police act investigation uh, that resulted in a uh, conclusion that um, 
uh, allegations of 13 counts of uh, uh, improperly disclosing information, three counts of deceit, two counts of discreditable conduct, and a count of neglect of duty uh, appeared to be supportive, supported, uh, and the uh, recommendation was he be dismissed. That police officer, a former Victoria police officer, uh, was then arrested following a criminal investigation. Criminal charges weren't approved with respect to the officer, but he wound up resigning. And it would appear from the information in this uh, decision that was just released from the Court of Appeal that the officer may have been sort of improperly engaging with people involved in criminal activity. Uh, But the details of it haven't been provided. And so this appeal uh, is going on on the basis of a desire to introduce fresh evidence about the conduct of this police officer who was the one who found this key uh, that was the key to the case. Uh, that wasn't properly documented. And so the issue here would appear to be, could, was it appropriate to rely upon the evidence of this now discredited police officer? And the judge uh, on the, at the original trial indicated that he was concerned about the uh, uh, police officer's uh, evidence because of how it was handled, how it was not documented, this inexplicable removing from the bedroom uh, before it was photographed for no apparent reason. Uh, But nonetheless, uh, while expressing reluctance in the judge's decision, convicted of the drugs in the safe, the judge acquitted of the drugs found in the freezer because the connection was the key. Uh, And so the decision the Court of Appeal just made uh, is one that's going to allow the substance of the investigation into this no longer police officer uh, to be provided Um, so that there could be an assessment about whether the um, information about what that officer did um, could amount to or should amount to fresh evidence when assessing the propriety of the conviction of the man who got the six-year jail sentence based on the key uh, that this officer claims to have found and not properly documented at the time. Interesting. Michael Mulligan, thank you so much as always. Thank you. Have a great day. All right. During the second half of our second hour, every Thursday here on CFAX 1070, Michael Mulligan, barrister and solicitor with Mulligan Defense Lawyers. This has been Legally Speaking.